Welcome to the Present Age Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Malloy. On today's show, I speak with Carlos Maza. As the host of Vox's Strike Through, Carlos helped shine a light on the way the choices made by media helped raise Donald Trump to power. His videos with titles like Why Every Election Gets Its Own Crisis, How Trump Makes Extreme Things Look Normal, and The Decline of American Democracy Won't Be Televised were some of the sharpest pieces of media criticism in the last five years. And then he stopped. After becoming the target of an anti-gay harassment campaign by right-wing YouTubers, Carlos was let go by Vox despite being named one of Time Magazine's 25 most influential people on the internet in 2019. I recently had a chance to chat with Carlos about all of this, and I'm really excited for you to check this out. Let's get started. So joining me today is the wonderful, the great, the talented, the prescient Carlos Maza. Hey, Hello, Parker. Carlos. Thanks, for, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to come on my my new podcast type thing. It's uh, it's it's an adventure every day over here. So it's a it's badass to watch you evolve over the years that we've been friends and it just feels like uh, getting to sit front seat at a really cool story. So it's a pleasure. We took a similar path in the sense that we both maybe have gotten a bit cynical over time and <laughs> not unjustifiably so. <laughs> I would say my path is one marked by increasing cynicism for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and so that's, I mean, that's part of why I wanted to talk with you because the other day, I was going through and looking at old, I was looking at old Vox strike through videos <laughs> and I rewatched all of them because one, they're very good, but Thanks. two, looking back at them, it's just like, yes, everything, yes, everything he said uh, was kind of on point. You know, you, you, you really broke down how Trump makes extreme things look normal, how harassment on Twitter became a giant, giant <laughs> issue, how the narrative around Antifa would, would kind of keep flying up. And then also, I think this is kind of important. It's uh, you had one that's, that was about the decline of American democracy and about mm-hmm. how media generally is not equipped to deal with this. And I think that we've kind of seen that happen uh, more and more over the past year or two, especially. And we're kind of at this point where there are people literally trying to overthrow the government, but media still can't stop inviting these people on meet the press and whatnot and treating them like they're totally normal. So I'm just kind of curious, what, how do you feel about what's, what's happening in the world as it relates to things that you predicted would happen in the world, things that you were pointing out were happening in the world? Yeah. I mean, my, you mentioned cynicism, and I guess my, that's my primary response to all this is that, like, when I was making those videos, you know, it was many of them were right at the beginning of the Trump era, and then over, the, I think, the first two or three years. And it felt like sounding an alarm bell on a prop crisis that could maybe be averted. Like, there was this feeling, I think, for me during 2017, where I thought this might be a wake up call. I mean, I'm sure everyone felt this way. Like, every week, this must be the thing that snaps things back into normalcy or, or back into some realistic sense of how bad things are getting. And I guess now that we're so long away from that initial moment of kind of like weird optimism, 
my sense about it was just like, yes, I felt like I accurately described what was going on. And I feel a little silly that there was, that I had hope that things would correct themselves. Like, I, I think I still had some faith maybe in myself as a media critic or just more broadly in the media establishment, their like ability to react to crises and, and adjust in course correct. And I think right now, and you, you might feel a similar way, my sense is you do, no amount of good corp media criticism will change corporate media's base incentives. And I think, you know, media watchdogs are valuable, but in the sense that you can move the beast, I think there's very little that good faith criticism can do because the people who sort of make these media calls are not operating from a, from a journalistic uh, priority. They're operating from essentially a business priority. And so, um, yeah, I guess I've just become really cynical. Like I look back at those videos and think, <laughs> What a sweet summer child, unaware of um, how hopeless this this kind of is. Yeah, that's that's how I look at a lot of a lot of my writing. A lot of my writing that I did over at, at Media Matters. It was it was the same kind of thing. It was Tucker Carlson is a fake populist. <laughs> it was look out for the the dog whistles and you know stuff like stuff like that. But we ended up everything just kept going along as it was going along and. I wrote an article about the importance of not letting Trump and his cronies get away with trying to subvert democracy back in December. This was before <laughs> January 6th because it was clear what he was doing. And even after January 6th, there was there was a week or two where everyone was like, oh, well, we have to we have to rethink things. And then they just went went along yeah. doing the same exact things they've always done. So I feel like I am. I am lacking in hope and optimism, which might be called for. I'm I'm not quite sure. We, we both uh, started kind yeah. of like in this weird, I think we both got to know each other and we're doing work around queer issues at, around the same time. And I think, I don't, I guess I'm curious about how you feel about it. Cause my sense about it when I was doing it was like, this could help. Like I had some real faith that I could alter the language and behavior of journalists. And that's what motivated me. And I've had to ha go through a real kind of shift on my own, like personal work journey about what I'm trying to do and what I think is possible and um, what I find useful. And that shifted a lot for me. Do you, have you felt a similar kind of like, we, we both start off as like these firebrandy activists and I don't feel yeah. like that anymore. No. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the past several years, anytime someone's used the word activist to describe me, I'm like, please don't, please, <laughs> please just don't. I mean, at one time, maybe I would have been fine with it, but mm -hmm. The more time has gone on, I went into when I was writing articles about trans issues at The Advocate, for instance, mm -hmm. I did that for about a year and I was kind of operating under this assumption or this hope that by doing this, I could help enlighten the ignorant. Yeah. Um, I, I, I went into things under the assumption that. Uh, that that by shining a light on injustices or explaining politely to people, hey, don't call trans women men, or maybe you don't need to include the person's former name in this article as yeah. they were not famous under that name. So there's no actual reason to add it. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that would happen constantly. And I think that there was some good that came from that, some good, but overall, the the messaging is just is just lost. And and over time, we've seen these queer specific 
publications either fold or shrink down to nothingness or just have zero traffic. And that aspect of things hasn't been picked up by, by like mainstream outlets. And that's kind of scary to me, but at the same time, I wonder if it even matters. And yeah, that's kind of that. where I'm at. Yeah. I, my sense is like, I, I think I had a very rosy uh, belief in the arc of the moral universe and things always slowly getting better, which is I think a, a luxury slash hangover of the Obama years uh, to some extent. And I, that feeling has been, I've had to grapple with that sense of like, I am not part of some big, inevitably successful project. What I do matters very little in the grand scheme of things. And how do you, like, how do you try to fight for a better world when you kind of get a sense that it might not matter or that if it matters, it's not because of you. And that's been a real, and I, I was curious to how you felt about it because I think we both went through a kind of like collapse of faith, maybe around the same time or, or a collapse mm-hmm. of optimism. And it's, it's fucked me up as a, as a writer and uh, as a creator. And looking back at my old Vox videos, I'm like, I'm a very different person now, like in my heart, even if the arguments I make are, are, would be kind of similar now. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I, I feel like a lot of my writing, even though a lot of my earlier writing, even though it came off in that sort of firebrandy kind of activisty kind of approach, even though that was what what I was what I was doing then, I feel like I came came to it with with such a different energy. And yeah. now it's just this sort of, well, things are bad. Things are always bad. Things will continue to be bad. They'll probably get worse. And I don't want to feel that way. I want to feel optimism, but I want to feel optimism with uh, justification. Yeah. You know, I want to feel justified optimism. Uh, and I, I, I don't. And I think that the power of of media generally is is important, and I think that some of the some of the flaws that have happened along the way really come down to the fact that you'll have places like CNN's reliable sources, for instance, <laughs> like that that show. They'll have <laughs> the same people on constantly mm-hmm. to talk about oh this newspaper in that town, or they'll have Ben Shapiro or Eric Erickson on or whoever. And what are we learning? What are we doing? What's changing? And I think that there's this reluctance to put people who really challenge the narratives that are pushed in media out there. And I, I the whole time that you were making these videos for Media Matters and Vox and, and on your own as well, it, it kind of just blew my mind that you weren't being constantly booked on TV because <laughs> everything you were saying made perfect sense. And when I would use that to to try to show someone who really meant well and wanted to learn something different, it would be effective. The way that you presented arguments was always so straightforward, but not condescending, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it would have done a lot of good for CNN, MSNBC, whatever to put you on air, but that, that didn't really happen. And that, that kind of made me lose a little faith in, not that I had much faith in corporate media, (laughs) but it made me lose the remaining amount of faith that I had Yeah, because 
they would rather keep putting the same old, same old people back on and making the same arguments and pretending that they're not seeing what's happening in the world. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond frustrating. What have you been up to? Because that is, that is something that you were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in, you know, 2019 was it time magazine said you were one of the 25 most influential (laughs) people on the internet, Mm -hmm. which which was very impressive. I was, <laughs> I was kind of like, wow, that's, that's awesome. But then, you know, then you did your own thing and then, mm-hmm. uh, you haven't really uploaded in, uh, uh, qu- quite a while. What have you been up to? Yeah. It's been such a weird experience. Like, I don't know. I think, you know, I had like my big, uh, falling out with YouTube and like lost my job and everything. And, uh, I think I just had a period afterward, that was like right at the beginning of the, um, right before the pandemic. And then I went independent in February and then the pandemic started. And I think honestly, like the cynicism that we're describing in terms of politics to me has aligned with a kind of broader anxiety about, or I guess confusion about like purpose and, and meaning in life. Like I, I don't, I don't mean to get too heady about this, but the last video I, I uploaded on my channel, um, my birthday in April uh, was about um, Albert Camus' The Plague, and it was like an existentialist reflection on um, like trying to do good in a world that seems kind of like in- inevitably doomed. And it took me forever to make that video because I was trying to describe something that I think even out even after making it, I grappled to talk to people about, which is this I don't know th- this this grappling with purpose. Like I, I think this might just be me, but. I certainly feel hyper aware of living in an era where it does kind of feel a little bit like the world is ending, at least in some like kind of meaningful way. And, um, you know, I spent like, I would say like four years, um, you know, at the end of, of media matters and at Vox working my ass off to make these videos that I thought were so important. And like, truly they like consumed my whole life. My whole identity was making these videos and now staying late at work every day. And, uh, my whole sense of self-worth was wrapped up in these videos. And I think to have it fall apart so catastrophically, like to very publicly get fired and um, kind of like to lose myself, lose my, my identity to get dogpiled, to like have everyone worrying about me um, and to lose it all, I think forced a real, like it's still forcing a real examination of who the fuck am I? What makes me happy? What do I want to do on, on this like limited time on earth? So I don't have a great answer to the question of what do I want to do with my time, but I think to answer your question about like, where have I been? I, I feel like I've just been wandering through my life a little bit, trying to figure out what I want to keep. Like, I know I don't want to work as hard as I did when I was at Vox because it made me a really unhappy person. I know I don't want to be as angry as I've been because my anger wasn't making the world better. And I don't think it was making me happy. And I know, again, sorry for this being too heavy, but I know I can't, save the world. And so I would like to spend a little more time saving myself. And that means is like more time taking therapy seriously, growing plants in my apartment, spending time with friends, uh, fostering a cat, like doing small things that I think keep me grounded in a world that feels often ungrounded. And I'm learn I'm trying to unlearn the lesson I learned when I was at, at Vox. And I think to some extent at Media Matters, which is, which is, your only worth and happiness comes from making a big famous thing and becoming successful. And it, it doesn't. So I wish I could, I wish I had like a really sexy answer. My honest answer is I I feel lost and I'm trying to be okay 
with that lostness right now because I don't really know a way out of it. And I, that's not something I talk to people about, obviously, because it's kind of like embarrassing and shameful in some ways. And I think on the internet, or especially like on Twitter, where you and I spend like a lot of have sort of spent a lot of time, it's a weird thing to to admit, like to go from this time person who's supposed to be really successful and popular to being like, I don't know if I want to be as public anymore. I don't know if I want to talk to people anymore. I don't know if I want to have my identity wrapped up in a performance that I can't control all the time, you know? Yeah. It's funny that you were kind of, you you brought up existentialism just because, I mean, I, I named my my newsletter and this podcast after um, Kierkegaard's the present age. <laughs> so it's, it's the same sort of idea. It's the same sort of stuff that I've been kind of going through, going through myself in, in yeah. that same sense of, okay, I, I don't try trying to find meaning in, in life and purpose. And I don't feel like it's, there's anything that we're supposed to do mm-hmm. or that there's anything that, that we're supposed to work towards. I feel like a lot of the time, it's just nothing. And we kind of have to figure out what, what we want to work towards, what we want our imprint on the world to be. And over time, it's that same situation where I, I put so much time and energy into making, writing articles about various issues. And then six months later, I find myself in a position where, okay, it looks like I need to write that same article again yeah. because no one listened last time. Mm-hmm. And after a couple years of that, it just kind of got to this point where I realized I'm just not making the kind of impact that I want on the world while also, you know, I, I, I viewed it kind of, le- leaving media matters, I viewed it sort of as a, a personal failing on my part for not not being good enough or persuasive enough or the right personality or the right person to to get these messages across that I I still believe in and still think are important and you know I I, I still like everyone over at Media Matters and enjoyed working for them and wouldn't wouldn't trade that for the world but at the same time I felt like. I was spinning my wheels. Yeah. I was telling the same story over and over and over. And I want to tell a new story, a different story, a more important story, a broader mm-hmm. story that that we can all kind of relate to. And I think to first to do that, it's important to really start to whittle away at uh, all, all the bullshit that's out there. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to do this more freewheeling kind of, I'm going to write about whatever I feel like writing about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to interview people about whatever I want to interview them about type of type of situation, because I'm, I'm generally genuinely pretty curious about what everyone's been doing with their lives in this weird year that the pandemic has kind of brought to us. Yeah. You have, you know, you have bands that uh, have had to cancel tours and they're like playing these weird streaming shows that are odd. And I'm not, it's clearly not what they want to do. It's clearly not what their fans want. And so everyone's kind of operating at this, this level of, well, I guess the best we can do right now is 
whatever. Even if it's an in-person concert, it's, yeah, sure. The But ideally, we would be going to concerts in these places where there isn't a virus just running rampant, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the the subtext of everything I do is that we're in we're in a world that is just flawed for all of us mm-hmm. and the way that we communicate with each other is kind of the only thing that there's there is left and yeah. it's been really interesting talking to talking to people about this because it makes me feel less alone if that totally. makes any sense to know that we're all kind of going through some sort of you know, different levels of horrific world events around us as it does seem like the world is ending in its own ways. And part of, part of me worries that wonders whether this is something that is somewhat unique to our generation, or if this is a feeling that everyone has had along the way. Yeah, And that, that is kind of the, the big question. Am I being, uh, am, am I being too pessimistic or am I, seeing things exactly as they are. And I, I still don't quite know the answer. And that's why, you know, having these conversations is so, so important to me. And so, um, I guess fulfilling in a different sort of way. And do you so, feel, yeah. I, I guess because both of us have had these like careers that were very, I mean, we were very, we have both been very front facing, like, our names and our identities are wrapped up in our work and writing. And I think both of us have personas that we, at least for some portion of time performed online that are not totally identical to our real personas. Like I think we both are much more, especially when we first started working in the same spaces are much more aggressive online than I think we are as like people normally. And I have gone through this feeling and I wonder if you feel it too, like having these, having this desire to retreat intensely and like reclaim my identity and kind of like hide away from the world for a bit. And I, I, I've been trying to think about like authors who will write a book and then like go on sabbatical for five years and be like, I'm not saying shit for five years until I have another book in me where we don't really get that luxury because we were just constantly making arguments. And how do you, A, do you feel that desire to like retreat and almost like protect your identity from even friendly audiences? And how have you, how have you managed that? Because I, I I get the sense that your relationship to an online identity has shifted significantly over the years that we've known each other, and I know that mine has too. And I'm curious, oh, like, where absolutely. your head is with that stuff. Yeah, I I absolutely have felt that, and I'm still in that sort of weird position where I mean, first first off, and if someone is, you know, if you m- manage a coffee shop or something or or a factory, or if you're a CEO at a very successful company, whatever the case may be, it's not about being online constantly. A lot Mm -hmm. of, a lot of people are, are online constantly for, for their own sort of reasons. But in, in our positions, it was, it's, it was crucial to, to making a living is, is being online. And so that has been something that through, I mean, the, the past few years of, uh, of therapy that I've been doing has a lot of it has centered on this, you know, idea of how do I, how do I deal with 
something that is making me feel terrible about myself and feel sad and feel angry all the time, which mm-hmm. is social media, the internet, um, <laughs> people, I sure. guess. <laughs> yeah, while also realizing that 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 is so core to what I am, what I'm doing and yeah. what I do with my life. And that's part, that's part of why I, uh, I decided to try this sort of solo thing because there wasn't at, at media matters. There, there's no out. You can't just go, I'm not going to pay attention to Fox this yeah. week because then you, you're not paying attention to whatever's happening in the world because a lot of the work revolved around what is happening in right-wing media. And I still keep up with this stuff, but I've already started to feel less anxious mm-hmm. now that tracking exactly what Tucker Carlson is saying every night or what Sean Hannity is saying uh, isn't my isn't my job. It's not my core job. And that is sort of... It, it makes me feel better about myself and what I'm doing in the world. Yeah. Even if at the same time, it feels like it's, it's giving up in a sense. Um, yeah. But this, this, that phrase giving up like really resonates with me because I think, especially at a place like media matters or even just monitoring conservative media, there is this impulse. I think you have as a media watcher that you need to be constantly drinking from the fire hose and just, everything needs to be responded to and everything needs to be corrected. And I think one shift that's happened in my mind over the past, like over the course of the Trump administration and the the Trump campaign was something is happening here that has very, that has basically nothing to do with people having correct information and something being fact-checked enough. Like no, no amount of fact-checking to me, felt like it made a shred of difference to people who were ideologically committed to this. And I think, especially going into Media Matters, I had this real kind of belief in people's good faith and and the sense that debunking works as a persuasive strategy that I don't have anymore. And I think, you know, even my work was built around this sense of, I need to make a video every three weeks and respond to the new thing that's coming up. Or if it doesn't get responded to, it'll spiral out of control. And I made those videos every three weeks and and I was like constantly at the office and it did not matter in any meaningful way. So I think I'm kind of in this phrase, this period of like, if I can, if I cannot stop the, the fire hose, mm-hmm. the fire hose is going to happen no matter what. And the people who I disagree with are not super interested in whether or not I can fact check them or debunk them. What can I do that's meaning, meaningful? And I think for me, making a video like How to Be Hopeless or the video that I'm working on now on critical race theory is starting from this place of like, I accept defeat when it comes to persuading those who don't see eye eye with me on this. Like, I know that I cannot win that fight. If I'm talking to those who are interested in what I have to say, what can I do for them? And it's just a very different skill set and objective, you know, like trying to speak to people who, whose hearts are aligned with yours is a different skill set. And I think a little bit tougher, like I find it much harder to write now that I've given up on debunking because Fact-checking is like kind of easy. Like really, just to point out that something is wrong and, and find evidence for it, trying to, um, I don't know, speak to someone who's in the same place of like despair and have them understand the world a little bit better or, or even like feel less alone, like you described, is tougher like as, as a writer and as, and as a, a persuader. And I find that I, I struggle much more now with figuring out like what is there to say that's useful 
Um, Because I don't feel like saying that's not true, that's not true, that's not true is useful anymore. And I would like to use my time more wisely. So I I don't really, I feel like a, even though we've been doing this for a long time, like I feel like an amateur again, like I'm not quite sure how to, how to make the argument because I don't know what I'm trying to persuade someone of right now. Absolutely. Oh, that, that resonates so much. (laughs) It's, it's, it's kind of funny that so, so far this, us talking has just been a lot of yes, that, (laughs) yes, but it's true. It's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating to me just to kind of, I mean, just talking to you about this, talking to you about these, these sort of shared experiences that we had, (laughs) even if they were at different times in our lives is, is helpful and, and hopeful in a weird way that it doesn't make me feel like a total failure. And I think that that is, that is what I'm kind of grappling with right now is trying to figure out how to, how to feel like less of a failure in life and less of a, uh, less of someone who, who just does a lot of, a lot of talking and not Mm -hmm. a lot of listening and doesn't really make it, make a difference. And so I've, I've been, yeah, trying to try trying to figure out different ways to, to connect. And, and that video that how to be hopeless was just, it's a fantastic video. And I'll, I'll be sure to link in the, uh, in the, in the transcript of this. I may, I make a point of, of getting full transcripts of the, of every, uh, every interview I do just mm-hmm. for the sake of accessibility and whatnot. And aside from being a expensive, um, it's very nice to have, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a, it's a nice way to add little ex- extras in there with, um, you know, links to links to YouTube videos and whatnot. But I'm just, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the one other thing I wanted to, to kind of ask you about when it comes to, when it comes to the topic of, you know, cancel culture and all all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. When we hear people talk about that and use that, I see that as people talk about, oh, well, this writer Andrew Sullivan got criticized for <laughs> race science or you know <laughs> some something ridiculous that yeah he's going to get criticized for, mm-hmm. and that was cancel culture for for criticizing him. So he's going to leave and he's going to take you know, a quarter million dollars or whatever it was. And everyone's going to feel bad for him because he was quote unquote canceled. And you see that happen all over the place. Yeah. Steven Crowder, for instance, constantly. Oh, he's, oh, he's been canceled because Mm -hmm. he was, he was criticized or YouTube took him offline for like a week to say like, don't do it again. And then he's going to do it again. But when it comes down to it, the pe- the people who who are affected by these things are are the ones that typically don't have the kind of megaphone to get the help. I've been canceled, kind of message out to the world, and yeah. I I saw that happen with with you and with 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 Vox. I mean, you had. I feel like you you were making a good point. You made you made a video pointing out how Crowder was was just attacking you and clearly violating YouTube's rules. And as much as Vox, you know, initially publicly kind of came out in your corner, it 
it seems like they, they kind of hung you out to dry. I, I'm not sure if, if you want to speak on that at all, but it, it just, it depresses me because I, I, I cannot believe that, that, well, I guess it's, it's the fact that they're, they're a company and they're a corporation and they're not, um, it, it's not necessarily mission driven or even, you know, worried about what the function of a company is, but in retrospect, do you think that things, they could have done something different or that they didn't have your back enough or did, was everything fine? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, the, like, I guess the humorously detached view of it is like, I spent all my time criticizing the way that corporate media prioritizes profit and, um, and finances over editorial good judgment. So then, <laughs> you know, when I lost my job because I threatened Box's financial interests, I was like, part of me was like, right, this is, ex- this makes sense. I should not be surprised. And I think, you know, that's the, the danger of any media critic at a media organization is invariably the things you're criticizing are going to happen the place that you work too. So um, I don't have a lot of, my feeling about it is I don't have a ton of confusion about what happened to me. Like I'm very clear that the argument I'm making was right. The reasons that I was let go didn't really make any sense. Vox was trying to sell a show to YouTube that made them a lot of money. You could not run ads on my show because I was making a political show. So it makes sense. And I don't have a lot of anger because I feel like I've grieved that thing that happened enough mm-hmm. that I'm not mad. Like I get it. You, you don't, um, you don't get mad at a lion for hunting prey because that's what a lion does. And you, of course, think it's shitty what happened to me and it was really painful, but I don't have any confusion about the fact the lion was hungry and I was prey and uh, Vox did what I had to do. Um, I will say that, you know, like beyond my anger or frustration with Vox, I had to go through this own kind of like reckoning of, did I fuck up? Did I do something that was wrong or stupid and was there something like sort of the way you described after leaving media matters of like, was I just not the right person? Could I have said this differently? And now that I've got some space from it, I can look back and be like, I am really proud of how I handled myself. That was like a very difficult, painful thing to go through. And my only motivation in it was fight like hell for what's right. Even if you think you're going to lose. And I fought like hell for what was right. I still think I'm right. I still think I did it correctly. I still think my argument is solid and um, I don't, I, I like who I was during that. And I'm still pr- really proud of that person who I am now. The flip side of that is it does not shield you from suffering and punishment. Like it's been a very, very bad, it was a very, very painful experience. And I think I'm still like grappling with the, the pain of it and this sense of like, it doesn't matter how good you are. <laughs> the good people are not always rewarded and this has nothing to do with you being good or bad. There's no way you could have phrased this that would have been different. You, you just lost. And you know, like the, the video of how to be hopeless is ostensibly about like grappling with grief at the end of the world. But for me writing it, it was also about like, you know, you can't stop the plague. Like if you're in the way, sometimes you just die. And you know, in this case for me, like dying is like losing my job and losing my identity as a public speaker. And um, rather than, be angry about it forever. I had to just like talk to myself and say, I really like you. I'm glad you did this. If this is it, you know, for my career, that's okay. Like you're just one person and, and just live a, a decent life. So 
um, you know, my existentialism is part like me grappling with COVID and Trump and part me grappling with feeling like I really tried my best and lost. And how do you make peace with losing it and not uh, use it as a weapon against yourself and say, I'm such a fuck up. I should have done this differently. I should have phrased it differently. And just being like, yeah, I lost, but I, I, I did not lose myself. And I tried to maintain my uh, integrity and act in a way that was aligned with my moral judgment. And I feel like I did that, e- even though that doesn't shield you from pain at all. Like doesn't shield, shield you from shame or um, feelings of worthlessness. You just have to like work through it. Sorry, that's like a very a fluffy answer, but it's a, a, an answer oh. based on a lot of therapy. Yeah, I it, I, I totally get it. And I, I get that it's it's complicated. Part of, part of what to me uh, on the outside stood stood out was that you were being framed as this uh the the argument for for instance with you know that the crowder and others on the right would kind of push was oh you are the corporate one and and he's just a little guy i mean he's he's loaded he has so much power and influence and i would assume money yeah and, and it was and you were being framed as the you know big corporate dude which we both know wasn't accurate yeah and you were, <laughs> that's it really hits home how life just sometimes is not fair yeah. and it's not right and i don't know is would you've done anything differently in in that particular situation or does it not matter given that we're you know, move, move past it. Have you, have you I, thought about that? At all? Yeah. I mean, the only I thing I would have done, think about. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I would have, I think I would have done differently was like for the first, I would say like the first eight weeks that it was this big public thing. I was so like on the defense and in like activist mode that I just had this exterior of like, nothing fucked with me. I'm not faced. Everything is funny. Like these people don't, don't intimidate me. I'm not scared. And well, you know, part of that is true. Like I, you know, you and I had both been in the trenches online for a long time. We dealt with a lot of harassment and shit like that. A part of me was very solid and like had, had no doubt. There was another part of me that was like, that was being kind of like traumatized by what was going on. And, you know, there were sessions where my therapist was like, are you good? Like, I know you're talking about how you're okay, but this is trauma. Are you good? And I'd be like, I'm fine. And my family would be like, are you okay? And I would say, I'm fine. And I was putting on you know, a, a brave face for everyone else, but also for myself, because I didn't want to admit that I was getting fucked about what's going on. And, you know, eventually I did have a like kind of a breakdown privately and really had to deal with the fact that I, I mean, I was just like, I was getting like PTSD and, and was having all these, you know, bananas anxieties about being afraid in public spaces. And I guess I, I just would have, I wish I would have given myself enough compassion earlier on to be like, Publicly, you're this tough guy and this is fine. Privately, you need to let yourself be okay being fucked up by what's going on. Um, and, you know, you can you can only fight it for so long before your emotions decide to find you and say, now we're having a breakdown. Um, but I really just, you know, my, my only th- thought when that was going on at first was like, survive, 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 survive. And there's just not a lot of room when you're in that defensive posture to be like, I'm okay, but this really, really hurts and I feel very scared right now. Um, so I guess that's what I would have changed, but in terms of the argument that I made and my choice to make it, I, I look back and I'm like, badass, you're, fu- you're like, that was badass. <laughs> and that's how I think I feel about that until I die is badass. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's, 
That's that's great. This has been a great discussion. This has yeah. been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. This Me is too. awesome. This is wonderful. And um, thanks so much for for coming on my 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 new podcast that hopefully more people will listen to as time goes on. Of course, uh, I, I got to say, you know, like um, because we've both been on like similar ish trajectories or both been dancing in the same space for a while. I'm like, you know, whatever else happens to us, I'm very grateful that you and I have fought on the same side for a while and got to like mm-hmm. kind of grow up with each other in this space. And yeah. these, these combos like this, it's um, this, I think being an online person can be, can be very lonely in some ways. And moments like this remind me that while the experience is often lonely, you're often lonely alongside other very good people. So I'm glad that uh, I'm alongside you in this. Yeah. Thanks. And I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'm just glad that we're friends. Same. <laughs> you know, in addition to all of that. Yeah. That is this week's episode. Special thanks to Carlos Maza. As always, you can find a full transcript of the podcast at readthepresentage.com.